This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having an experienced mix of mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago, and this show is about you. We're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. There we've got the fundamentals of dating, attraction, body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, relationship maintenance, breakups, and more, and a lot of stuff that people overlook. We've also got our live programs, or boot camps as we call them, running every single week here in Hollywood, California. Details at theartofcharm.com or give us a call here in the office, 888-413-7177, or you can just email me, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. We'll get you sorted out. Looking forward to meeting all you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today, we're talking with my buddy, AJ Jacobs. This guy, he's a best-selling author of four books. He's a writer about radical self-improvement. You'll see what I mean in a second. He actually stoned an adulterer, and he lived by the Bible for a year, tried to become the healthiest person possible, and we'll see how he measured that. We're gonna get some surprising dating advice from the Bible. We're gonna talk about radical honesty, Old Testament style, how to be careful with your information diet. For example, avoiding internet comments about yourself and more, embracing failure, talking to yourself to clarify your thinking, and George Clooney and George Washington's secret to success. So enjoy this one with A.J. Jacobs. At some point, they're gonna be able to do all kinds of crazy genetic testing. You know, we should get a scientist for this, but I've heard there's all kinds of things inside DNA strands and they just don't even really know what it does. Yeah, it's true. They call it junk DNA, but it's not junk. It's not junk. I bet it's who, for all we know, it's a historical record of things that have, you know, that around a hundred years ago. That would be really neat, wouldn't it? Totally. Like a yeah, time absolutely. machine. Um, but now we're just fantasizing. Tell us a little bit about who you are <laughs> and what you've done. I mean, I've read your stuff for ages. So have a lot of other people. I mean, you lived biblically for a year. I mean, just rather than me butcher an intro, how can I make this a win for you? So I'll let you introduce yourself, and we'll take it from there. Great. Uh, I'm AJ Jacobs, and I am a writer, and I've written four New York Times bestsellers, mostly about radical self-improvement, because I need a lot of improving. And I'm sort of a human guinea pig. I take on a, a lifestyle and then immerse myself in it and write about it. I did one where I tried to be the healthiest person alive. Uh, I did one where I followed all the rules of the Bible as literally as possible to see what made my life better and what made my life weirder. Uh, I read the encyclopedia from A to Z and tried to learn everything in the world. And now I am trying to make the biggest family tree in the world and trying to make a tree of the entire human race so that I can figure out how I'm related to you and to every one of the listeners out there. Yeah, you, you've done a lot of, I love the radical self-improvement ideology. I'm more of a moderate self-improvement kind of guy, although people who know me that aren't into self-improvement stuff are like, no, you're not. You're completely <laughs> radical. 
And I think it's funny because when you compare yourself to like Tim Ferriss, who's like, I'm only going to eat this slop for a month and see how it does, what it does to my liver or like supersize me. And he uh, does, Morgan Spurlock. Yeah, Morgan who? Spurlock. You know, those guys, I, I guess that's radical self-destruction if you're only going <laughs> to eat McDonald's for a month or three months or whatever it was. But you lived biblically for a year where you followed all the rules of the Bible for a year. Does that include the Old Testament or was that the Old Testament? Tell us about that because most people that I talk to when I say, I'm talking AJ Jacobs right now, blah, 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 they're like, who's that? For me, this is one of the things that put you on the map because I thought, this guy's insane. <laughs> and I read the whole article because I was like, I, you know he had to stone someone at some point and you got around that. Well, you did it. But I did do it. I did do it. Technically. To go back to uh, Morgan Spurlock, he's actually doing a documentary on this uh, project I'm doing, the world's biggest family reunion, because he is a cousin, too. He's like a, a 26 cousin, I believe. So um, I like doing the radical self-improvement just so that I figure out what works. You know, I don't stick with everything, but I think to learn what's best, you got to go to the extreme. Uh, so that's what I did. And with the Bible one... That came about because I grew up with no religion at all. I, as I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. Right. So not very. But I wanted to learn about religion. I thought, why not dive in, follow everything? So I did. Um, I followed the famous rules, the uh, uh, Ten Commandments, love your neighbor, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, I had twin boys during the year, so I took it seriously. But I also followed the, the, less, thank you, the less famous ones. Uh, you know, so I grew my beard. Uh, you're not allowed to shave. Uh, and I, uh, I, you can't wear clothes of mixed fibers. That's in the Bible. What did so you I, wear? Well, you, you know, I just wore all cotton. Mostly, you can't wear poly cotton. That's not allowed. That is an abomination. Yeah, yikes. Yeah, as you mentioned, I was able to stone one adulterer. I used very small stones, sort of pebble size, so that's how I got around it. But I did want to check everything off the list, follow it without picking and choosing, see what improved my life and what didn't. And, you know, a lot of it was crazy, absolutely, but a lot of it actually did make a significant improvement in my life and made me happier. This isn't a religion podcast by any stretch. I just want to clarify that in case this is the first episode that people are listening to. <laughs> I was just curious about that. But first of all, when you say you stoned one adulterer, were you talking to this guy and you were like, hey, man, here's the thing. I'm, I'm doing this Bible thing, as you know, or it was like a good friend of yours. So it was sort of like that. I was in the middle of the year and I was really getting into it. So I had on the beard and a robe and I was sandals. So I really was looking like a biblical guy. And I was in Central Park in New York, where I live, and this guy came up to me and he said, why, why are you dressed like that? And I explained, I'm trying to follow all the rules of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, stoning adulterers. And he said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And I said, well, yeah, that would be fantastic. Thank you for that offer. And I took out a handful of stones that, that I you had, had for the occasion. Exactly. I had been carrying around stones for weeks. And then I showed it to him, and they were small, as I said, and he was very aggressive. He grabbed the stones out of my hand and threw them at my face. Oh, wow. He wasn't like a buddy of yours, and you're like, here, uh, I stoned you. He was a jerk. Yeah, no, he was not. He didn't think the whole thing was a joke. He was serious, and he um, said so he was aggressive, and uh, I was able to throw one back at him and check that off my list. Did you haul ass after that? <laughs> he actually left. He brushed by me as he left. 
aggressively. Good thing he didn't do anything more severe. You would have had to, yeah, like you said, an eye for an eye, man. Well, I will say uh, that he was like probably 75. So so you're thinking (laughs) maybe you could have taken him. Maybe. Yeah, excellent. (laughs) So which parts parts of following that improved you? I'm guessing throwing pebbles at geriatrics in Central Park wasn't one of the things that took you to the next level. Not not top of my list, Uh, but a couple of different things. One is just the idea of gratitude. You know, the Bible makes you say these thanks. I'll say grateful, be grateful for everything. So I was going crazy with gratitude. You know, I would press the elevator button and I'd be thankful the elevator came. I'd get in the elevator and be thankful it didn't plummet to the basement and, and break my collarbone. So it was hundreds of times a day. And it was a real change in perception because you realize there are hundreds of things that go right every day. And we totally take them for granted. And we focus on the three or four that go wrong. So the fact that this technology, this microphone of yours is actually working, that's remarkable. Uh, And we should be thankful for that. So that's made me a lot happier. That's good because you're showing gratitude consistently, right? So that's perfect. I like that a lot. When you're at the drugstore and you're in the slow line and you're getting all frustrated, and I always say to myself, you know, oh, I'm always in the slime, the worst luck. But actually, it's just because you don't notice the times that you're in the fast lane. So notice those times and be thankful for them. Good. I like that a lot. Gratitude is something that comes up a lot on this show. It's something that people need to do more of and something that's tough because it's a tough habit to build. But yeah. if you force yourself to do it among, you know, wearing cotton shawls or whatever else it was that you were doing, then yeah, that might might have been the easy part. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that has nothing to do with religion, really. Uh, anyone can be grateful, uh, atheists or religious people, uh, but it's reminding yourself. And you can actually, for a while, I experimented with, with digital reminders. So I would program my iPhone to send me little reminders saying, you know, what are you thinking about now? Remember to be uh, grateful for, for what you have. And uh, it was nice. It was nice to be like a little nudge because otherwise my mind, I don't know about yours, my mind goes to the darkest places. We're Jews. We, you know, we're, we're Jews like <laughs> the Olive Garden's Italian, but that part still comes through. If there's anything, that's the one part of me that's Jew. It's the 0.3 that's Jewish and not Yakut. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. So... Why did you move from that to some? Well, you have, you have dropped it healthy, which is becoming as healthy as possible. How did you measure that? Because I'm looking at your picture, you look like a healthy guy, but did you actually take metrics, or was it based on how you felt? I did. I embarked. I I did a test. Everything. I tested my brain, my heart, all the you know cholesterol, all all the usual metrics, and then um, I tested them at the end. And yes, I I got healthier. I I lost weight, but the actually the biggest change was was hard to quantify because it was I felt more energy. I felt at the end that I was so much less lethargic, and uh, and that was very important. That's that's key, and I don't think a lot of people realize how it, people say this all the time. Like, oh, you know, I'm fine. I do this. I I recently I was like, man, I got a lot of energy. Everyone's telling me how energetic I am and how I work so hard. I started going to the gym and now it's even now I'm getting up even earlier with even more spring in my step even though it's it's maybe a sore spring because I'm just starting to get back into things but um you know I always cycled and things like that and I thought oh I'm you know I'm 
I'm good. I'm in shape. I'm I'm up to the task. And now that I'm going to the gym and have a trainer, it's like, wow, you know, I am ready to eat healthier and da, da, da. it really does put you into another category health-wise. And everybody I know that's a successful entrepreneur that really gets things moving forward, you know, those people are always taking care of themselves and they're always taking care of their their health. And it's unfortunately the first thing we sacrifice when we get really, really busy and we get a family and we have our job going in full steam, it's the first thing that to go, I think. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, uh, I hate the gym myself. I find that, uh, first of all, I'm a germaphobe, so I don't like all the other people's sweat. But you can be healthy and exercise without going to the gym. So that's what I try to do. Um, like uh, you probably read about these treadmill desks where you put your computer on top of a treadmill and, and write while you're walking. So I do that. That's one of the things I've kept from that year. I mean, I love to walk and write. And I'm not coordinated. So if I can do it, uh, anyone can. So I'm a, I'm a huge – and as you say, it's it's all about the energy. I, I thought I would be tired at the end of the day from walking, but it actually gives you more energy to be walking instead of sitting on your butt. So you've got a treadmill desk. Yeah, I would be on it now, but it makes a whirring sound, and I didn't want to Yeah, I appreciate your, that, because uh... that was my next question, is I don't hear anything, so you <laughs> must not be on it now, which is good. Living by the Bible, as it were. and <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Thank Yeah, gosh, how exhausting. How exhausting to live so simply. <laughs> exactly. yeah, what was the rationale behind the polycotton thing not being kosher? I mean, what's? do you have any idea? No, it, there is no rationale. It just says it, and you, there are a lot of theories about why it is why it's in the Bible. But no, they don't explain. It's one of those that are unexplained. What's the most rational or reasonable theory, in your opinion, for that? Because that's a weird one. You know, you get like, don't eat pigs, because, you know, the trichinosis thing, and like, right. don't mix dairy and meat, because that stuff, you know, one feeds the other's bad bacteria, can make you really sick. But the fabric thing, it's like, what other fabric was there where it's like, man, if you wear that, you're going to die. <laughs> you're going to get the whole village right. sick if you wear that burlap sack any longer or whatever. Yeah, I think the best explanation is that it was just training your discipline, which a lot of these things do. So it's all about following rules, almost for the sake of following rules. I don't agree with that personally, but it certainly does help give structure to your life. And it's almost like mental weight training. Like if you can discipline yourself in this way, then maybe you'll be able to pay attention and be more productive at work, that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you get any dating advice from the Bible? Well, it's interesting. The Bible, there's a part called the Song of Solomon. That is like, that is seriously R-rated. Maybe NC-17. I mean, they, at least for the Bible, they talk about things like... Uh, Where does it rate on Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On scale? Above I'd say or it's below? equal. I equal. Maybe even, even more. There's this part where it's, it, it's basically a guy who was writing a love poem to this woman, and it's not clear whether or not they're married, but he loves her, and he wants to express that love physically. So he says things like, your breasts are like twin gazelles mm. feeding among the lilies. I mean, that's hot stuff. For the that buyer. was the first thing I said to my girlfriend, and it's, <laughs> here we are living together. I would like to see someone try the biblical pickup lines, like go to a bar and say, your breasts are like twin gazelles and see what happens. So if anyone does that, please email me the results. She'd be like, should I be offended? Hold on, let me get out my smartphone and Google gazelle image. Hmm. <laughs> All right, which part of the gazelle are we talking about? 
In fact, I'm going to do that right now because I'm. There are people in Africa right now who are like, you don't know what a gazelle looks like, but I, I'm not even sure. Twin gazelles were those considered beautiful or something back in the day? Because it's basically a deer with horns. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe it was the size, the shape. I don't know. But it's. I'm sure there are biblical scholars who have thought about this. Twin gazelles, what feeding? Feeding among the lilies. Feeding among the lilies. Yeah, you could. I mean, if you are out there right now and you're single and and you want to go out and try that and email me your experience or better send me a video of your experience, I will uh, share that during one of our shows and you will become uh, I famous. I would love it. Go to the Song of Solomon and write down all the lines in there because that's just one of them. There are a whole bunch about her alabaster skin and lips and uh, so yeah, I would highly recommend that. As an experiment. Yeah, and you can modify it a little, right? Like, alabat- you, you pasty white, deer-breasted <laughs> woman. <laughs> that might not work as well, but it certainly is a good control for yeah. the experiment. Yeah, it is. There's a reason he's a poet in a biblical stature and that I'm, I'm just running <laughs> The Art of Charm as a, as a show. That's the difference between me and, and Solomon's song. There's a lot of relationship advice in there. What stuff did you apply with your wife? Well, one thing that was interesting is that there are parts of the Bible that say that you should always tell the truth no matter what. <laughs> Your ass does look fat in those pants. Sorry, it's the Bible. Exactly. That's it. So I actually tried this. It's a movement called Radical Honesty, not a religious movement, but right. I stumbled onto this movement. It was founded by a psychologist in Virginia, and he believes just that. You should never lie. Whatever's on your brain should come out of your mouth. No filter. So it's beyond not lying. It's just like whatever you think, then you say. Like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. So I tried that for a month. And that, that was probably the worst month of my life. It was because uh, <laughs> it was, you know, in polite society. If you do this, you're not going to be married or you have a girlfriend. You're not going to have a job because uh, there's a reason for that filter. But at the same time, there were things about it that were incredibly liberating and incredibly positive. So if you do sort of positive radical honesty where you where you talk about, I called up my mentor who I hadn't talked to in 15 years during this and said, I was just thinking about you and how much I appreciate what you did. And he was you know, probably a little creeped out because it had been so long, but he was, I think, also grateful. So there is a sense of that. And after I did this, this was an article. I wrote it as a separate article for Esquire magazine, where I'm a writer. And it, the reaction was fascinating because I got lots of people who said they were testing it out, including, and this relates to, to your show, I got a huge number of single guys who said they tried radical honesty as a technique yes. for women. Thank you. It's a great technique. And it's selective in a lot of ways. It's like a symptom of something where if you're confident enough to be radically honest or you can make yourself get that way and you just walk up to a girl and you say, hi, you're really pretty and I don't really have anything else that's creative to say about that, that's much more flattering than staring at her for an hour until you finally leave the area where she is, right? Because that's <laughs> weird. And that's what most guys do. And, and the thing is, guys are like, I need something clever. I need something to figure this out and blah, blah, blah. And it's really, if you can just muster up that, but the problem is a lot of guys who wrote you that probably did it once. And then after that, they were like, oh my God, that didn't go anywhere. And there's a lot of things that, that can go wrong. 
But, I mean, yeah, if you can muster up that amount of courage, I mean, you're going to be light years ahead of everybody else who sits in the corner and stares at people. Well, that's the thing. I think with using that as a, as a technique, it's a numbers game. You're going to yes. get rejected a lot. People are going to walk away from you thinking you're totally creepy, which maybe you are. But uh, you also will get some people who are intrigued. And the guy who founded it, Brad Blanton, the psychologist, I asked him, did you you know, partly invent this as a way to pick up women. And he didn't deny it too strenuously because he has told me he has used it. And, you know, he he uses it even more bluntly than I find you pretty. You know, yeah. he would go up to women and say, I, I find you beautiful and I, I'd like to go home with you. Your breasts are like two gazelles feeding exactly. among the lilies. And damn, damn gazelles, girl. Yeah. Um, you know, you said he didn't deny it too strenuously. That sounds like the opposite of radical honesty. Nah, Did- <laughs> no, he was pretty honest. He says, I use it. He's been married five times, at least uh, last I talked to him. There's that radical honesty in relationship yeah. management track record. There you go. There you go. Maybe not the best strategy Hi, for honey. long-term marriage. What's, what's, what's wrong, Brad? <laughs> I just, I'm not feeling the same way I was about you a year ago, mostly because you're fat now. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, he is a, he's a fascinating guy. You know, I don't live like him, but but I do respect some parts of radical honesty. But yeah, he told me that he goes, you know, he used to go up to women when he was single and and it would work sometimes. He would end up going home with them. Excellent. All right. And is that radical honesty stuff is that in the Old Testament or the new one? That you can find in both. I mean, what's interesting about the Bible is that it's not when people say, oh, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. The Bible says lots of things. The Bible, at least I believe it was written by dozens of different people over hundreds, uh, thousands of years. There are parts of the Bible that say be as honest as possible. But then there are other parts that encourage you to, you know, if you have to, you know, then uh, if it's uh, a means to an end, then it's okay to tell an untruth. Well, so basically you can twist it to do whatever you want, except you still have to wear non-mixed fabrics and stone adulterers. Is that much we know? That I recommend ignoring. Yeah. Well, that was part of the conclusion of my book, is that we're always going to pick and choose from the Bible, and that's okay. There are people who are very conservative who say you've got to follow everything in the Bible, but even they are picking and choosing. And I say that's okay. You know, there's something called cafeteria religion where you just cherry pick things. And and I'm all for cafeterias. I've had some delicious meals at cafeterias. So I say pick and choose the parts about compassion, loving your neighbor, being a better person, uh, tolerance, and not the parts about stoning adulterers and homosexuals. I, I'm all I'm all for the cafeteria mindset. That's great. In fact, treat this show like a cafeteria as well. Pick what you like and discard what you don't. But you know, speaking of picking and choosing, though, you actually had mentioned this before. Being care and this is something that I do a lot of being careful with your information diet, avoiding internet comments about yourself. I'm pretty crap at that. I like to read the comments and I always feed the trolls. It's taken me years to learn not to do that. I still read a lot of it comments and it's it's never a good idea you know you and i might have that problem i think most people don't have internet comments about themselves maybe the occasional facebook thing that they can delete from somebody that they know so it's not as bad as like somebody just eviscerating you who you've never met in your life you know what i mean it's not necessarily just for 
for the internet. It's all about trying to focus on and avoid the information that'll just spiral you into depression and it's of no use to you. I'm obsessed with reading these horrible stories about rare diseases and they are not very helpful. You know, the one in eight million people is gonna, uh, will die from, uh, what they call dry drowning or something like that, where you you go for a swim and then water mysteriously fills your lungs. And that'll send me into, that'll freak me out for like two days. So I really try to avoid the clickbait where roaming the internet, looking for these depressing, horrible stories. So yeah, I, I think a, a, an information diet is a good metaphor. You just got to be careful what you consume. It's so tempting to consume the gossip uh, and also looking at, yeah, the horrible things people say about you. And I don't think it's just people in the public, public eye. It can be anyone uh, on your Facebook page or if you make a comment on a website and someone else trashes your comment, it's just like, let it go. Who cares? Excellent. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. And man, you really do drive yourself crazy with it. I think low information diet is great. People go, well, you don't know what's going on. And I'm thinking that does not affect me at all. So <laughs> I just don't want to waste time. But yeah, definitely when you're looking at something that's actually stressing you out, I mean, that's next level dangerous. You know, you got that's like a drug addict staying away from the stuff. I mean, that's one of the keys, I think, to my life is, you know, the Odysseus strategy. You've heard of that where yeah. you sort of treat yourself, you you babysit your own brain and know that your brain is going to make some horrible decisions. So you make it hard for your brain to do that. And it comes from the Odyssey where Odysseus knew that he was going to, his boat was going through the sirens, these mermaids who sang beautiful songs and he was going to jump over and, and die. So he had his sailors tie him to the mast so that he couldn't jump over. And that's what I feel you got to do. Like, you know, putting my iPhone in a different room so I'm not tempted to look at it every 10 seconds. Yeah. Or putting the crappy food high up in the shelf so I'm not tempted to get a handful whenever I walk by. And, and same thing with, you know, not putting these websites about horrible <laughs> diseases on my, uh, on my bookmark. So it's all about sort of uh, preparing for the worst part of yourself. I think that's great. We're using our own psychology against us. My friend Ramit, actually, we were having breakfast a while ago, and he said, do you read Reddit? And I said, unfortunately, yes. And then we started laughing for about five minutes because he knew exactly <laughs> what I meant, which is that do you read Reddit really means two things. Do you keep tabs on interesting things on the internet? And do you waste at least five to 10 hours a week with stuff that has nothing to do with anything productive and will never yield any positive ROI for your time invested? And the answer was yes. And so I might block that website. For me, I, I've weaned myself away from it pretty well, and I don't check it that much. But I mean, Facebook, I you know, the Twitter, I used to be a super Twitter. Now I only check it. I get notifications when somebody mentions me. I never check my feed. Otherwise, I unfollowed everybody, blah, blah, blah. My new sort of time suck is iTunes, looking for new stuff and finding mm -hmm. this and that. And, and I've got a podcast collection that I will never listen to because <laughs> I could get a week off. I could get locked in a solitary confinement with nothing to do but listen to podcasts, and I still right. wouldn't make it through all of the stuff that I've got downloaded. One uh, good little hack I use for podcasts is listen to them on double speed. 
You ever do that? Yes, I do. I do. I love that. Yeah, I, I do. love that. Especially like uh, something like NPR, where they speak very slowly. Yeah. So if you put that on double speed, you're not going to miss anything. If there's a fast talker, it might be a little bit of a challenge, but I still prefer it. Uh, maybe one and a half speed. Yeah, now that people have found that out, I'm going to sound like this for the rest of the time. <laughs> it's true. I actually, I think I did listen to you on double speed, so it's a little odd to be talking yeah. to you on single speed. I know, speed. you're like, Jordan, just get it out of your system already, yeah. man. What well, is with that. you today? Did you have too many drinks? Why Jeez. are you talking so slow? Yeah, God. And I hear that all the time, and I'm thinking, you know, people, they're like, it's weird to hear your voice, and I'm thinking, is it really, or is it just really slow? But, yeah. <laughs> now, what have you learned from failure? I mean, I'll, that seems like a radical jump, but hey, we're talking about radical things. You've learned to embrace failure in many areas of, of your life, most notably in your resistance to reading articles about Ebola and dry drowning. Uh, <laughs> but what, what can we do to embrace failure? It's a topic that comes up a lot on the show. It's something that people discuss a lot. It's, it's a cliche now. Right. Like, you fail faster. And, and people say that, and I'm like, you don't sound smart saying that anymore. Three years ago, it would have been like, whoa, fail faster, that's weird. Now it's like, yeah, 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 you don't even know what that means, explain, right? Because right. a lot of entrepreneurs say it, and I'm thinking, what example can you give of you trying to do that? And they usually come up dry, which is why I usually ban things like that from the show, but you can't go through what you've gone through and not embrace a crap ton of failure. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, such an essential part of life. And I wouldn't say fail faster, but certainly fail more because it's a numbers game. So, uh, you know, for every 10 failures, you're going to get one success. And so I actually first started thinking about this when one of my first books, I read the encyclopedia from A to Z. And it was fascinating to read about all of these historical figures and how much they failed and how they were rejected. All the great people like, uh, you know, Carlton Chester, who invented the Xerox machine, which was rejected by you know, 25 companies before Xerox bought it. Or one of my favorites is E.E. E. Cummings. He had a book that was rejected by 14 publishers. And finally, when it was published, his acknowledgments was sort of an anti-acknowledgments, like no thanks to you to hear the public. He listed all the publishers who rejected him, which seems a little petty. That is very petty, especially since shouldn't he be thanking the ones that did reject him because they led him to the successful path he's on now by not Yeah, maybe that was publishing. a sin. I know I always thought he was such a like a happy poet talking about clouds, but he had this uh, this bitter side. Uh, but anyway, I think he's right. You know, you've got to, failure is just a numbers game. Even Picasso, uh, he painted a lot of masterpieces, but he painted many more terrible paintings. So that's what I try to do is I uh, throw ideas out there, and sometimes they work. Most of the time they don't. I spend 15 minutes a day every day, at least I try to, just generating ideas. And 98% of those ideas are going to suck. But... 2%, hopefully, will be good enough, and I can pursue those and, and see what comes of them. I think the fail faster thing actually came from the tech world, where people are like constantly iterating and pushing out things and testing them and breaking them. I think that might be more of like a hackery thing. Right. Yeah. And you talk to yourself a lot, from what I understand, as well. <laughs> I do. This was I did an, an experiment on focus and how to get more focus, and one of the scientists I talked to was telling me that when you talk, 
you actually engage the frontal cortex, which is sort of the intellectual part of your brain. I found it to be very helpful in focusing. So sometimes I'll just spend the, the time uh, when I'm walking down the street, I'll sort of narrate my, you know, here I am walking down the street and then I'll talk about what I'm thinking about. You know, I'll go through a decision like, so I have to hire someone. Here are the pros of hiring this one. Here are the, so I'll say it out loud while I'm walking down the street. And yeah, you got, you know, strange looks, of course. But overall, I think it's a very good strategy because it makes you very aware of what you're thinking about. If you think silently, sometimes, as I say, my mind goes to a really dark place and I don't even realize it. So if I'm talking out loud, it's almost like I'm able to control my thoughts a little bit more yeah. and be more conscious of them. So I am all for talking out loud. The more verbal we are, I think the better thinkers we are. I agree. And I think it also helps with the negative self-talk for some people anyway, because if you talk to your friends like you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends. All right, back to the show. Mm, and that's a good one. Yeah. It's good, right? And if you do it out loud, you know, if you're in your head and you're like, oh, Jordan, you idiot, why did you do that? You know, you're like, you're beating yourself up a little bit. It's pretty quiet. It's just a normal thing. But if you say out loud, Jordan, you're such an idiot. Why'd you do that? You go, wow, that sounds pretty harsh. I should maybe go a little easy. All I did was steak in the microwave. I mean, what's the big deal? <laughs> Calm down. You know, and you, and you stop doing that. Uh, and that's yeah. a crap example. But I think people get where I'm coming from, especially... When it comes to things in business, I'll say something like, this is awful, I can't believe this whole stressful thing is happening, and then I'll tell my girlfriend about it, and she's like, you realize that none, none of the things you mentioned are even like remotely, they're not even worth mentioning. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. I don't, now that I've verbalized it, it's like, huh? Who cares? It's true. It makes it less, much less scary if you just say it. And, and I agree, yeah, I love that idea of treating yourself like you treat other people. In fact, during the health book, one of the theories that I liked was by this Nobel Prize winning economist who talked about how you've got to treat your future self with respect. So, you know, because we've got the current self that wants to sit on the couch and eat Doritos and watch TV. But what about the future self like, who's going to, uh, because of that, be fat and in pain and yeah. have heart failure? So, so be kind to be your future self. Yeah. If you're sitting around going, oh, man, future me, I don't envy that guy, then you should probably <laughs> make some changes. <laughs> so you've actually interviewed some pretty cool people, one of whom stands out because I, I don't see a ton of interviews with him. You interviewed George Clooney. I did. He was a wonderful interview. Loved talking to him. The idea I had was that I was going to show him all of the horrible things on the internet about him and see what he had to say. And he was great because he totally engaged and he was he was fine with see a guy like that. You got to you got to love because he was OK with all of the horrible things people say. So um, there was one stupid homophobic site that said George Clooney is gay, gay, gay. And uh, George Clooney said, told me, that's not true. I'm gay, gay. But that third gay is pushing it. So <laughs> you just kind of have a sense of humor about that stuff. But one of the best things that he told me that I think of all the time is we were talking about how he was a kid and he played baseball. And when he got up to the plate, he would say to himself, he wouldn't say, am I going to strike out? Am I going to hit a single? Am I going to hit a home run? He would say to himself in his brain, I'm going to hit a home run. 
which field should I hit it? Should I hit it to left field or should I hit it to right field? And of course, a lot of times he still struck out, but that extra almost delusional confidence and optimism made it much more likely that he was going to get a hit. And he says he does that in all areas of life. When he went to casting calls, he'd be like, all right, I got this. You know, how should I play it? Well, how should I, should I do this character with a Southern accent? I'm going to get it no matter what, but how should I do it? I love that idea. I just love the idea of going in with this sort of almost play acting as if you're confident. And if you do that enough, you become a little bit more confident and it improves your performance. So I'm a big proponent of the whole fake it till you make it, fake it till you become it idea. When I was writing one book on uh, health, I was like, every morning I woke up in, in despair because I said, oh, this topic is too big. It's too, I can't write about it in a year. But then I would pretend that I was confident and I would call up doctors to set up interviews, or I would call my publisher and say, okay, let's have a big party when the book comes out and we can serve healthy drinks like kale martinis. And after a couple of hours of pretending I was confident, I became more confident. Your brain starts to catch up with your actions. And they talk about this in psychology, the cognitive behavioral psychology all the time. So that was one thing I really learned from George Clooney is this sort of delusional optimism has its place. You want to, you don't want to be too delusional, but you want a little bit of delusional optimism. That's great. Yeah. I think people who are delusionally confident, I find, and I've done this, people interview me and they're like, when you were first starting your business, what were you thinking? You know, how did you make sure to get through the tough times? And I remember thinking I was just too dumb to know that this is kind of a dangerous venture that could fail with very little warning and leave me kind of like in my parents' basement if I'm lucky and more likely couch surfing or homeless, you know, and that's not the answer they want to hear. They were like, well, you know, I knew that we were going to be successful and I hedged my bets here. And it was more like I never, it never occurred to me that I was going to fail. And that <laughs> was good because I, that would have driven me crazy. And after a while, I started becoming more rational and being like, oh my God, this could go wrong and that could go wrong and this other thing could go wrong and oh my God, so much stress. And that was, that was very unhelpful. Right. Yeah, for me, the best organizations have a, a CEO who's somewhat slightly delusionally optimistic and then you have someone pulling him back all the time saying, well, let's think about the consequences here. Let's think. So a realist and an optimist. I think you need the balance. Yes, that's a very good point. Do you know any other Georges that have secrets to success that we should share? <laughs> Ironically, I do. Right. Yeah, the, I once did a, an article or a chapter in a book about the founding fathers, because talk about delusionally confident. The fact that these guys even thought they had a chance against the British Army, that's crazy. You know, these guys were a ragtag group of farmers with amateur weapons versus the greatest military force on earth. And the fact that they were able to pull it off is just astounding. So anyway, I was very interested in them. And uh, I started reading about George Washington. And it turns out when he was a young man, he wrote a list of 110 rules of living, uh, 110 rules of, of civility. And I thought, all right, you know, this would be interesting. Let me try those out see if I live like George Washington, maybe I'll be a better person. So I did. And the rules are fascinating. A lot of them you expect, things like 
uh, be be kind and uh, respect elders and don't gloat when you're victorious. Don't brag about your victories. Uh, but some I did not expect. My favorite was the rule number two. This is literally the second rule on 110 rules from George Washington is do not adjust your private parts in public, which, you know, that's a solid rule. That is a solid rule. It's solid. But I just I would put it a little lower on the list. You know, number two seems like. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit uh, high up there. But who yeah. knows? Maybe back in the day, was that like an epidemic thing that was happening? Exactly. I guess so. I mean, like everyone was a, a baseball player and a hip hop star. You know, everyone was just touching their junk all the time. Yeah. But so I thought it was strange. But but it actually wasn't that strange because a lot of the rules do talk about the way you hold your body and the way you move. And George Washington was actually famous for having amazing posture. He had the best posture of any president. And so I thought I would try that. So I did. I, I stood like George Washington, you know, shoulders way back, chest out, arms akimbo. And uh, it was weird because it affected the way I felt. It wasn't just my body. The body affects the mind. And I started to feel more confident when I stood like this. And, you know, I would tell my kids, uh, stop licking your placemat. And, and they would actually listen to me because I was standing up straight and being confident. And it turns out George Washington was like 250 years ahead of his time because you probably have seen this, all these studies about how posture affects your mind and your uh, and your testosterone level rises when you are in what are called the power positions with yeah. your uh, shoulders back and uh, and chest out and when you're open uh, your cortisol which is the stress hormone that declines when you're in these there's a great TED talk on it by a woman named Amy Cuddy right yeah who's a professor you might have seen that mm -hmm. so anyway I, I love that I learned better posture from George Washington because my natural posture is terrible my natural posture is like I'm hominid number two on the evolution charts yeah 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 one of the like in the little side by side where we're kind of crawling around like monkeys you're sort of more towards the middle yeah, exactly. Yeah, towards the, the left side. Yeah. So, uh, but I force myself. It's again this idea of faking it till you make. Uh, force yourself to have good posture, and it will make a difference in in your mind. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think, man, that should definitely go in there? Well, one thing is, I just want to briefly touch on my new project, which is, as uh, I mentioned, building a family tree the biggest family tree ever. And eventually it's going to be a family tree of the entire human race. Right now on my family tree, I literally have 79 million people in 160 countries. And at the end of it, I'm going to be throwing the biggest family reunion ever. That's next June in 2015. And it's in New York, but all around the world, there'll be satellite parties. And it is a fundraiser for Alzheimer's and Morgan Spurlock, the Super Size Me guy, he's making a movie out of it. And I got to say, this new revolution and, and being able to find how your family with everyone, it is great for meeting people and networking. And even, uh, I know one of the themes of your show, meeting women or single men. Uh, you don't want to marry your first cousin. 
Maybe you do. Some people I, do. I mean, let's not judge. Yeah, but yeah, uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I there's biblical. This that's in the Bible somewhere. Yeah, first cousins are actually allowed in the Bible. You're absolutely right. Um, but yet, this, had we had this conversation a few years ago, you'd be singing a different tune, huh? <laughs> that's true. Uh, but yeah, so I want this to be like the best party. It'll be like a TED conference meets. Coachella meets Woodstock, uh, Burning Man. So I, I, I would love it if everyone would try to go to globalfamilyreunion.com so I can figure out how you are in this massive world family. And it's wild because you get to see who you're related to, not just me, but President Obama or Gwyneth Paltrow or Ronald Reagan, whoever you like, you can figure out how you're related to that person. It's not going to be close, but it's going to be like, you know, 14th cousins. But it's just an amazing, it's the ultimate social network to be able to see how you're connected to all these people around the world. So if I had one uh, one takeaway, uh, try to go to globalfamilyreunion.com so you can figure out how you're related to everyone else on earth and then come to the best party of 2015. Uh, excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I know the audience and guys out there, guys and gals out there listening, greatly appreciate the uh, time that you've spent coming in here and the, the effort that you spent to not wear polycotton blends Absolutely. for a My whole year. Pleasure. Thanks so much, AJ. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hope you guys enjoyed that one. AJ Jacobs, always an interesting catch, especially his uh, living by the Bible for a year. I mean, it's by far not the only or even maybe the most interesting thing that he's done. But for me, I thought it was a really fun one, especially for this show. And the dating advice from the Bible, you get it is, of course, priceless. Feel free to send me a video of you guys using that stuff in action. Radical honesty, Old Testament style, good or bad, I suppose. And being careful with your information diet as well as embracing failure, talking to yourself to clarify your thinking and secrets of success from some Georges that we know and love. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We really rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank AJ on Twitter. We're gonna have his Twitter link there in the show notes. Bootcamp, live training details at The Art of Charm. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, that should change. Getting stuff delivered to your phone or computer while you sleep, it's really the best way to make sure you don't miss anything, and you can do that by going to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribing. That's pretty much it. And of course, we've got our iPhone and Android apps at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android, respectively. You can grab that stuff. And don't forget to leave us a nice review as well. So go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there, get social, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.